Well, yes, happy Father's Day indeed. Aren't we grateful for our dads? I tell you what, would all the dads stand in here and let's give them a hand, please. Thank you, guys. We have a, a gift for every father here today. As you're leaving this morning, we're going to hand those out just to say thank you for being you. As the video said, there are so many lessons in life that we learn from our fathers. And for many of us, among other things, we've learned a lot about our faith from our dads. I know that I've tried to teach my kids about faith, of course, by sharing my understanding of the scriptures with them in order to build their faith, but also in my actions and in truth. Sometimes are better than others. I haven't always been successful in modeling true faith for my kids. And thankfully, on the whole, they're progressing in the right direction. Not always because of my great example, but because of God's faithfulness to us and our family and our friends. And sometimes in spite of my own lack of faith, to be honest. So when God comes through in a situation and you get your kids to witness that, it helps build their faith. So we should never miss an opportunity, right? Even after the fact, when God does something extraordinary, when he provides out of nowhere, when he, he brings healing, when he offers understanding out of confusion, when there's peace in the midst of life's storms, we should never miss the opportunity to point those moments out to our kids to show them how God has come through for us yet again. Because it will not only build your faith, but it will build their faith as well. And as a father, I try to do my best to do that, although I'm not always successful. I was driving my car one day. I had Avery, my daughter, in the back seat. She's six years old now. She was probably four or five at the time. And she was complaining about her leg hurting, and she wouldn't stop. It was just on and on. Dad, my leg hurts. Oh, Daddy. Oh, my leg. You know, just that kind of thing. On and on. Can't focus on what you're doing and driving. So we come and the light turns yellow and then it turns red and I realize I've got some time here. So I turn around and I look her right in the face and I say, listen, Daddy's going to pray for your leg right now for, for the Lord to heal it, okay? And she said, okay, Daddy. And so I reach back and I put my hand on her leg and I said, dear Father, I just ask you right now that you will touch Avery and that whatever's going on that's making her hurt, that you'll heal her leg and correct anything that's you know, out of place there, Father. I just pray you take away all the pain right now and make her feel comfortable and give her peace and healing. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And I opened my eyes and looked at her and she looked up at me and she said, well, that didn't work. I said, what? She said, my leg still hurts. <laughs> All right. You see, her faith was simple and clear, and she expected healing to happen like right now at that moment, which is exactly, uh, actually a really beautiful picture of childlike faith. And in fact, in Luke 18, 17, Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What does that mean? What do you mean by that? He meant that we're to have childlike faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's a faith and trust that says, if he said it, then I believe it, period. If there was any faith problem when I prayed for Avery that day, it certainly wasn't a problem with her faith. Okay? And so today, as we continue our sermon series on the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to focus on this subject of faith. And we're going to see how the Apostles, now full of the power of the Holy Spirit, are expressing their faith and the results of that. And we read during worship, 1 John 5, 4, For everyone 
who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's a big deal. Obviously, one of the most important topics that we can discuss as Christians among ourselves and with uh, those outside of Christianity because, of course, we know that we're saved by grace through faith, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.8. There's no way around it. To be a Christian, a follower of Christ, faith is foundational. We can have all of the scriptural education available, all of the understanding of the original writings and their context, all of the uh, circumstantial, scientific, historical, archaeological, all the personal evidence in support of the gospel, and we should understand all of that intellectually as much as possible. But at the end of the day, we still must have faith to be saved. No way around it. Faith is an essential component to what we believe and teach. Faith, in fact, is required to accomplish God's will. We cannot please Him without faith. It is simply not enough to study the Scriptures, attend church religiously, participate in good programs, care for people, advocate for the plight of the needy, and then think that that's enough for us to successfully carry out this commission that Christ Himself gave us. It is not enough because we must have faith for him to accomplish, for him to accomplish through us what would otherwise be impossible. He must accomplish through us what only he can, and that requires faith on our part. And he, he will work through us as we learn to rely more and more on the power of the Spirit that dwells within every believer. Because without faith, the best that we can hope to achieve is a morally stable existence based on a set of rules and regulations. And that's how the Pharisees and the Sadducees were trying to get by. On the contrary, if we want to live a life that fulfills His divine purposes for us, that realizes the true potential that He's placed in each one of us, well, then that life is going to require a lot of faith. So let's pick up our story from last week. We'll start back today where we left off at Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus' followers have now received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Peter preached to the crowds who were gathering to see what was going on. And through the preaching of the scriptures and Peter's exposition of those scriptures, God added thousands of people to the ranks of the believers that day. And then at the close of chapter 2, we saw the New Testament church coming together and expressing the gifts of the Spirit in fullness and power. And then the chapter closes by saying yet again that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So let's read together now, starting at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Okay, the Jewish day was from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., so the ninth hour, if you count from 6 a.m., nine hours, was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which was one of the three prescribed times each day when devout Jews would go to the temple and pray. And it's interesting to note that Peter and John were going to the temple at the prescribed time to do their praying. The fact is that although tradition, particularly in the religious sense, has developed a bad reputation in the, in the modern church, the apostles continued to practice Jewish customs even after the New Testament church began. In fact, the separation of the Christian community from the religious 
Jewish community was something that happened much later over many years. And it wasn't until the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 that those two religious systems completely separated. And as we continue through Acts, we'll see that when Paul went on his missionary journeys, his custom was to go into the synagogue first when he arrived at his destination. And it was there that he would initially form and strengthen relationships. So it was very natural at this point for Peter and John to adhere and participate in the Jewish religious customs that God had instituted. We have a tendency today to throw the baby out with the bathwater sometimes. I think we, we, we no longer um, think that because we're under the old covenant, that nothing that was prescribed by God in the Old Testament in the way of custom and tradition is to be recognized today. But I would submit to you that our Christian experience, this walk with Christ, would be understood in a much richer and deeper way if we would recognize so much of what God had instituted for the purposes of remembering His mighty deeds and understanding His work in the lives of His people and the dedication that He requires from those who follow Him. Religious tradition is not bad. In fact, it was invented by God as a means of teaching us remembrance and understanding and discipline. That's why we have communion, the Eucharist. That's why we commemorate Christ's birth and death and resurrection every year. And the feasts and many other Jewish customs serve to teach us a lot about the nature of God as they remind us about all that he's done for us. Okay, And Peter and John knew that as well. And so they were on their way to the temple to pray along with the other God-fearing Jews. And possessing something far more costly and powerful than money, they encounter a man who has been unable to walk from birth. And Luke makes sure to mention here that this was a, this was a man that was carried to the temple every single day so that he could beg for money. In other words, there was no mistaking for the people who attended the temple every day that this man was indeed lame. He was crippled, unable to stand by his own legs because they'd been encountering him probably for many years. So let's see what happens. Verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Jared and I were talking about the story the other day, about the significance of the fact that Peter said to the man, Look at us. Apparently he wasn't initially looking at them, even though he'd called out to them, because Peter said, Look at us. Right? Begging for money... Every day at the same place at the same time, probably to the same people, becomes a very mechanical process. It certainly isn't personal. What happens when we see someone begging for money on the street or standing out at the red light in the corner with a sign? We tend to look away. We don't lock eyes. We tend to look away. It isn't a, per a personal thing. And it, you sit there hour after hour, day after day, and call out to people. And likewise, for those entering the temple, it becomes part of their routine. The beggar is sort of part of the landscape, if you will. So you walk by without even having to look at him. And maybe you throw down a coin or two at his feet and you keep walking into the temple. It's a completely impersonal transaction. People simply going through the motions. And if we're not careful, ministry can become that way for us. We can become desensitized to what we're doing sometimes. Desensitized to the needs of those around us because those needs and even the people sometimes just become a part of the landscape. And so we have to guard against that. I think intentionally we have to remain aware and sensitive 
to his leading in every situation, even if it's something we've encountered a thousand times before. And that's what makes this encounter so notable, even before the miracle occurs, because Peter and John make it very personal. Peter says to the man, look at us. If we want to engage people in ministry, sometimes we have to put down our phones and turn off the iPods and close the laptops and look at each other in the eyes. Ministry is intensely personal because ministry is about relationships. That doesn't mean, obviously, that technology can't play a part in it. It certainly can, but not at the expense of personal connections. And so here... Peter and John are now engaging with this man directly, face to face, and Peter speaks, verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. When the Hebrew people used the phrase, in the name of, they were expressing the very nature and authority of the person that they were talking about. So when Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, he's making it very clear to the lame man and everyone else there that what he's doing is being done by the power and the authority and in the very nature of Jesus Christ. Okay, verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping, and praising God. Just an interesting side note here. The references to the man leaping in verse 8. is the, uh, There's a very rare Greek word used there. Halomai. Which is also used in the Septuagint. The, the Greek Old Testament. In Isaiah 35.6. Very rarely used. It references in Isaiah 35. The blind seeing. The deaf hearing. And the lame leaping. Like a deer. In the messianic age to come. Specifically. So this event with the lame man at the temple gate is actually a prophetic fulfillment from Isaiah 35, 700 plus years earlier. I think that's amazing. And it must have been for those like Peter and John who understood the scriptures at the time, okay? Verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. I guess so. Last week we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit that every believer, every follower of Christ has available to them. And, and the way that the Spirit of God expresses that power through us is by the gifts that He gives us. And right here in this story we see multiple gifts operating through Peter and John. Obviously the gift of healing. The man's feet and ankles were made strong and he's walking and leaping around for the first time in his life. As well, the gift of discernment was at work in them in identifying the man and, and the moment in which the Spirit was choosing to act through them. Okay, we, again, Jared and I were talking about this. He's been doing a study in Acts as well. And if you look at timelines of Acts, some scholars put this event a couple of weeks from Acts 2 to Acts 3. Like it, like it happened immediately after. Some put it at a year, some three years, some five years. So we don't know. But potentially, if they're going to the temple to pray three times a day, and they're passing this guy who's brought daily, right? Peter and John could have passed him thousands of times before this event, the same man. Maybe not, we don't know. But the point is, clearly discernment was working in Peter and John as to know when to act. Certainly the gift of faith 
which Peter addresses specifically in this next portion of the story. Okay, so let's continue. Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. Solomon's portico was a a colonnaded area, like a covered porch outside the temple. It ran the entire length of the eastern side of the outer temple wall, uh, but just inside the eastern wall that faces the Mount of Olives. So this was a huge area, a large open area that was obviously very crowded, as we'll see from uh, Peter's from the response to Peter's sermon later in chapter 4. Okay, let's continue. Verse 12. And when Peter saw, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own prayer or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. I can't imagine hearing that sentence. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Okay, one of the gifts of the Spirit is faith. And we see that here. The power of the Holy Spirit provides faith for the believer. Okay, and if you're, if you're following an outline, I think we have the point up there. The power of the Holy Spirit provides faith for the believer. Who had faith for this man's healing? It certainly wasn't the lame man. He was just doing what he did every day. His faith was in his routine. He believed that if he sat out at the gate of the temple every day at just the right time, people would give him money to live on. And that's about as far as his faith would get him. How often do we place our faith in our routine rather than in the power of the Holy Spirit working in us? It's so easy for us to draw conclusions about our lives, what's going to happen next, uh, what we're going to be able or not able to accomplish, or how we'll be used or not used by God based on our past experiences based on our routine, based on the resources that are available to us. Centuries after this event in Acts, a great theologian named Thomas Aquinas visited Rome. And he had an audience with Pope Innocent II. And Aquinas was somewhat amazed as he went in by the opulence of the Vatican in that day. And that was before the building of St. Peter's. So still a very impressive headquarters for the church. Filled with all kinds of riches. And the Pope was proud of the material wealth that the church had accumulated. And he said to Aquinas, No longer do we say, silver and gold have we none. And Thomas looked at the Pope and said, Maybe that is why we can no longer say, rise up and walk. We tend to find our faith in our routine, in what we know from experience, in what we have, what we've accumulated rather than believing in the power of the Spirit uh, at work within us. The same Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, that's the Spirit that lives inside of us as believers, according to Romans 8.11. That's pure power available to every believer. And so it is my opinion that every believer that struggles with trusting God instead of their routine, and by the way, I'm preaching to myself here, each one of us should be asking for the gift of faith Because he has faith available for every one of us. 
And although this lame man who had faith in his routine was not a believer, Peter was. And Peter had the gift of faith flowing through his spiritual veins. In fact, the lame man in this instance wasn't required to have any faith for healing. It was the one praying, the one with the relationship with Jesus Christ, who had to have faith for the healing. By the way, this agrees with other parts of Scripture. James chapter 5, 14 and 15. James says, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Those are the pastors. And let them pray over him. Which is not to say, by the way, that we don't pray for each other. We do. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. What are the key working factors in healing in this passage in James? Certainly the elders are involved. But it doesn't say that the elders are doing the healing. There's oil involved, but it doesn't say that the oil is doing the healing. It says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Who's praying? Who's praying the prayer of faith? It's the elders. So the sick person isn't required to have any faith here. On the contrary, the elders must have faith, full of faith, because it's the prayer of faith that saves the one who is sick. Where does that faith come from? It's a gift of the Spirit. It comes from the power of the Spirit that dwells within us. And then James says, and then the Lord will raise him up. Okay, so to be clear, the Lord heals people. And he often does that through the prayer of faith offered up by the elders, believers who are full of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what we see happening here in Acts chapter 3 with Peter and John. There's faith available for for the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And that fact has the potential to radically change the lives of every believer and consequently then the church and consequently then our entire culture. The church today in the West is so influenced by pop culture when the opposite should be true. And in my opinion, is that we've come to rely so much on routine, what we're used to doing, that we've lost much of our faith in the power of the Spirit. And therefore, rather than influencing culture and affecting everyone that we come in contact with for the cause of Christ, we're constantly scrambling as the church to keep up with popular culture in the hope that if we do a good enough job in impressing the world with how well we can fit in, then maybe, just maybe, they'll give us a try. It used to be the other way around. And in some places it still is. But look, the church should be so full of faith in what the Spirit of God is doing that we are radically different than the world around us. What is happening in the church should be so starkly at odds with the relativistic, politically correct, spineless culture of compromise and selfishness that we live in That people flock to the church because they see the power of the Spirit at work in the body of Christ. How do do we get there? How do we get there? The answer is faith. Faith in the one living within us, even to the forsaking of our routine. I love the guy that wrote the song, um, and I can't remember. Now here I am, not here I am to worship. Um, I can sing it for you. Famous, yes, Matt Redmond. What's the name of that song, Steve? No, it was another worship song. He said, when all the music fades and all is slipped away, I simply come. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. 
what a, what a wonderful song. You know, the story behind that song. He was a big time still as worship leader. You know, crowds of people and the lights and the guitars and all this stuff. And one day he said, this is it. It's time to put all that down. And they worshiped without any instruments for a long time in that church. It's a great testimony. Getting out of our routine. We have to be willing to do whatever he calls us to. Even if it doesn't fit the routine, our history of what we've always done. Because that's what makes sense to us. We have to be willing to listen outside of the box. And to respond in faith to whatever endeavor he calls us to. Okay? I told you earlier, God's been speaking to us about some ministry opportunities that are a bit unorthodox this year. We've talked about that a little bit. We'll be telling you more about it Wednesday night. But listen, we've said, yes, Lord. Yes, it's risky. Yes, there's an element of unknown, but we're exercising faith that even though we've never done or even heard of anything like this before, we're charging forward because we believe that you will enable us to accomplish the task by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. And this is how we should be living every aspect and every moment of our lives, full of faith, being led by the Spirit in every encounter, every conversation, every task before us. And as we do that, people will see the difference in us. They will, they'll notice the way that we live is different and our attitude is different and our results are different. And people will want what we have. That's what was happening in the first century church. And we see it as early as the book of Acts. So let's keep reading. As we see Peter full of faith, not only lead a man to healing, but now thousands more to Christ as he continues his sermon. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And clearly, Peter is not concerned with political correctness here. He's just speaking the truth. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 18, 15. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter's becoming quite the preacher. Remember, this is the same guy that denied Christ three times because he was afraid of the crowd. And now here he is, the same guy preaching possibly to some of the same crowd with boldness and confidence and understanding and wisdom and discernment. What's the difference? How can this same guy be so different, possibly so fast? Well, before he wasn't full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And now he is. And what has that done for him? He now, among other gifts, has the gift of faith coursing through him. Faith that Jesus really is who he said he was. Faith that he can preach the word of God and it will not return void. It will not go unfulfilled. Faith to carry out his calling as God's messenger. Peter didn't have faith for any of that before. 
He ran away scared at the first test. But now, oh man, what a difference. Now full of the Holy Spirit, Peter has faith that is bigger than all of his fears. Don't you want faith like that? Don't you want to be so full of faith that no matter what happens in your life, your fears kneel and surrender to your faith? Man, I do. I want that kind of faith. That is the faith that people outside of the body of Christ see and are attracted to because it's something so much bigger than even our own imaginations. And the world is starving for people who are real, living by a different code, one that takes courage and involves risk and produces results. And that life can only be found in Jesus Christ as it is lived out in faith. It's a faith that only comes from from Him, from the Spirit within us. And it's available to every believer. Okay, you with me? You with me? We're all still here? Okay, all right. Let's finish the text today. And we'll wrap up by reading the first four verses of chapter 4. Where we'll see that the power of the Holy Spirit provides faith for the unbeliever. Okay? This is the point at which faith has, has to become a reality for those who have yet to believe. As we've seen, Jesus healed those who had no faith. Peter prayed for those who had no faith and saw them healed. Uh, All manner of miracles were performed for people throughout Jesus' ministry on earth who had no faith. In fact, most of the miracles performed in Scripture were done as a sign to unbelievers. A big part of the reason I, I understand that miracles happened were for the benefit of those who had yet to believe in Christ. But here, in the first few verses of chapter 4, we see something different. The transformation of unregenerated hearts, the salvation of men and women. This is the moment when the lost must have faith. Let's read it together. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Okay, The captain of the temple was second in rank only to the high priest, And he and the Sadducees are ticked off because of Peter's sermon here. The Sadducees, we believe, may have only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as divinely inspired scripture. We know that they denied the resurrection. And so here Peter's preaching scripture well past the Pentateuch. He's he's going on about Samuel and all of those who came after him. And he's testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter's pushing all of the buttons of the religious leaders here, and they have heard enough. Verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Okay, The Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, which was a council of 70 really influential men, plus scribes and priests, they would meet in the mornings. And so since it was evening, Peter and John had the privilege of spending the night in the slammer. But Peter's sermon had already taken its effect. The arrow already struck its target. Okay? Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Okay? So at Pentecost, there were 3,000 added to the church. After Peter's first sermon, we know after chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, that the Lord was adding to their numbers daily. And now after Peter's second sermon, there were about 5,000 men alone who put their faith in Christ. So if you count women and possibly children, we're easily looking at over 10,000 Christians already in the church. 
These are 10,000 plus people who knew little or nothing about Jesus who are now followers of Christ in a relatively short period of time, maybe a very short period of time. How did that happen so quickly? If we equate church attendance with making disciples, and I understand that just because someone attends church regularly doesn't necessarily mean that they're a follower of Christ. But just for the sake of, of a statistical discussion, if, if a church today grows to 10,000 members, that's, ex- that's extremely rare. I know that on the whole you can say there are many mega churches with those kinds of numbers. That's true. But compared to the number of all the Christian churches in existence, it's a minuscule amount that reach 10,000. So for a church to grow to 10,000 members ever is amazing. For a church to grow from 120 to 10,000 in this period of time is incredible. How does that happen? Really, how does that happen? How do that many people without faith all of a sudden place their faith in Jesus Christ? It's the combination of two things. Tangible evidence of the gifts of the Spirit working in people's lives and the preaching of the gospel in conjunction with the display of those gifts. When Christians full of faith and and the power of the Holy Spirit decide to say yes to the call of God in their lives and in faith proclaim the truth of the gospel, not only through preaching of the word like Peter did, but how they live their lives together as the church like they did in Acts 2, 42-47. When we gather and allow the gifts of faith to function in and among us, So powerfully that the effect is palpable to everyone who witnesses it. In unbelievers, they will believe. Once they've heard and understood the truth of what is happening. And that comes by preaching and teaching. It's the combination of people witnessing the power of God at work. Followed by the explanation scripturally of what just happened. That is a pattern that we see all throughout the Bible. God does something amazing in the lives of people. They say, hey, what's going on? And then he testifies to the truth about why those amazing things are happening. Moses saw a burning bush. That didn't change him. But then God testified to the truth to Moses. Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle. People didn't change right then. But he always followed that up with teaching and preaching the truth. The 120 followers of Christ spoke in tongues. And people said, what's going on? And then Peter preached the truth. And people were saved. Peter and John performed a healing miracle for the lame man. No one got saved in that moment. They chased them to Solomon's portico. And then Peter preached the truth of the scriptures and people were saved. Paul was blinded by a light on the road to Damascus. When then the spirit after that testified to him to the truth and he was forever changed. It's a pattern all through scripture. When the power of God and the evidence of it is on display for unbelievers... And then that display of power is accompanied by the preaching and teaching of the truth. People will believe. What's the common denominator? It's faith. It's faith. Faith that if we follow his calling for us to make disciples and live according to his word, that we will see people's lives transformed by the gospel. It's living by faith. It's worshiping together in faith. It's preaching and teaching in faith. It's praying in faith. It's living out our lives full of faith right in front of the whole world. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's Hebrews eleven six. But full of faith and power, the church will influence our culture profoundly. 
And all of this means that we have a tremendous responsibility. We are culpable for the plight of the hearts of men and women. So first of all, we need to take responsibility for getting unbelievers to the church. Not because the church saves people. He does. But because the church is by far and away the primary means by which God works through us to reach the lost. We went through that last week. So we need to bring people to church. It's critical. Second, I think that we need to ask ourselves very honestly, when people come to this church, what is it that they will experience that will compel them to ask, what's going on? What is this? Will they experience a really good music? Or will they experience a gathering of people who are genuinely lost in worship? Worship in spirit and in truth that is so powerful that the reality of our devotion and commitment to him will be palpable in the room. Will they hear a a motivational speech or will they experience the scriptures preached with such conviction from the pulpit and confirmation in the lives of these people that the truth of his word pierces their hearts? Will they meet really friendly people Or will they experience a love that is so real from a whole group of people that they've never met that his love through us will melt the coldest of hearts? Will they meet gifted people? Or will they experience the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, discernment, uh, prophetic messages that encourage and build up the body. You see, if we don't have faith for him to work in and through us, then we'll only have faith for what we know, what we can predict, what we can see, our routine. And in that, the Holy Spirit will always be limited in our church, which is why I believe that many churches are not growing today. Some are even shrinking. Because we've placed all of our faith in ourselves and in our talents and in our personalities and in our abilities instead of saying, oh my God, We're nothing without you. We need you to lead us in worship and in teaching and in how to love one another. And that that doesn't mean that we stop preparing or stop practicing or stop developing our abilities. God gave us abilities to be exercised for him. He gave us the capacity to organize and prepare and deliver so that the message And the expression of worship and the gifts would be clear and undeniable, not confusing and out of control. We talked about all that last week. You can go back and listen if you you wonder what that's all about. But the difference is faith. Are we every time we meet believing that the Holy Spirit is going to be in the midst of our worship that we've diligently prepared? Are we believing that he's going to convict the hearts of men and women by the preaching and teaching of his word and a message that has been prayed over and worked through for this day? Are we expecting that as we express his love to strangers that they will respond to the power of the Spirit within us? And if we do believe for all of that, If we really do, then why aren't we dragging people in through those doors every week? Because we want them so desperately to experience it and be forever changed. Some of you are, by the way. I know, in fact, most of you are here today because someone has asked you to come. I talk to people almost every single day outside of our church about our church. You know what I tell them? 
how amazing you are. Because you have the spirit of an amazing God living inside of you. And so I hand out cards. I think we're going to set those out somewhere so you guys can have some. We decided you should have cards to give to people. There's a map on the back. And we asked them to come. Because I really do believe that people's lives have been changed by God in this church through you. And will continue to be as long as we get them here. So I'm asking you today to have faith. The same faith that Peter had when he prayed for the lame man. The same faith he had when he preached to the crowd. The same faith that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the same faith that he offers us. That's the same faith that will totally revolutionize your life and transform the hearts of people that you encounter every single day. That's the faith that I want. How about you? Let's pray.